Ethereum enables is folks to bootstrap very easily and, and spin up an application that's in a very simple manner that can reuse lots of stuff. What we're trying to build with Atomic really is to make it as simple as possible for people to be able to access not only kind of these more advanced con concepts like DLCs, like what is a DLC, how do I use it? What if it's just in an app and it's a click of a button and it's super simple? That's really what we're trying to enable for folks is for open finance to be simple and easy for folks. And that's that's the really, I think, the way that financial tools for Bitcoin should be built, right? If we're gonna just keep sitting here and build you know, custodial financial tools for Bitcoin, we're gonna end up with FTX in the future. We're gonna end up with BlockFi in the future. This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Decentralized Radio. Today, we have Matt from Atomic Finance on the line. Matt, how's it going, brother? It's, it's going well. It's going well. Uh, en enjoying the uh, last, last days of summer here. Yeah, I, have a, I was talking to someone else who's in Canada, and it was like cloudy the other day, and he's like, oh, so much for seeing for the sun for the next you know, seven months. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, yeah, it was, it was cold for the first time yesterday. So we're like, well, I guess w winter's coming early this year. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah it's, it's rough at the higher latitudes, but I was telling him you kind of just got to lean into the winter and uh, yeah, try and get cold adapted. But that's why maxing in the summer is so important. It's the same thing is happening here, right? I mean, we get a little bit longer in Wyoming, but these sunny fall days, I'm like, trying to hold on to for the for the last bit of, of sunshine before you know there's a random snowstorm in october or something <laughs> totally i feel you gotta you gotta soak up as much vitamin d as you can get while while you can so that's that's the nature of it yeah it's cool i was talking to svetsky about this in the last podcast he's you know he related it back to like economic and cycles and social cycles it's like if you know the winter is coming you can prepare uh, accordingly but it's it's when you kind of don't know and where you just make these bad decisions along the way so it's really fascinating but um yeah atomic finance i talked to tony a good amount so it's kind of fun to get introduced to the other half of atomic right here on the spot i think it's really cool what you guys are doing but i think it is a little you know it's that weird space of yeah yield where that's a, a tainted word nowadays and you guys have talked a lot about that and even tony is putting out he's like well what do we call this it's not really decentralized but it's not you know it's also Bitcoin backed and, you know, self-custody. So we'll get it into all that. But I guess before that, yeah, maybe just high level is like, what is Atomic? How did you get into crypto before we even get there? You know, what was the draw? And I think you guys were in college, university together and he pilled you or you pilled him. I don't remember what it was. Well, 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 actually, originally it was um, my dad. Actually, was the original okay. uh, pilling. He he got me into Bitcoin uh, way back in 2013, 2014. Um, so he was he's a bit of a gold bug, and so um, you know any you know alternatives to uh, you know government currency were very interesting to him. And so obviously Bitcoin fit into that category. So you know I can remember sitting sitting there back in 2013, 2014. 
you know, managing my dad's dad's Bitcoin. He's not a technical guy, um, you know, sitting there, you know, oh, you know, why is the transaction taking so long uh, to, you know, to confirm? I didn't understand blocks at the time. You know, fast forward like a couple of years at, to 2017, uh, myself and, and Tony, uh, we went to the University of Waterloo up here in, in Canada together. And um, and basically, I wouldn't shut up about, about Bitcoin to him. I was like, hey, you know, this is really exciting technology. What's being built here? Um, and funny enough, we were we were in Waterloo, right? And, you know, some of you may know, um, you know, that's really somewhat of the birthplace of, of Ethereum. Um, if we remember Vitalik originally went to Waterloo. And so, you know, there was a, you know, a large kind of crypto community, large Bitcoin community, but also a very large Ethereum community. And so we got kind of sucked into that, um, you know, based on, and, and there's certain values that are interesting, right? There are certain values that say, hey, you know, um, especially DeFi, right? Financial tools. Um, humans should be able to access financial tools from anywhere in the world, right? Like, why is it that some people are able to access this, you know, in one place and, you know, you go to a totally different country and everything's restricted. And so that idea of open finance was very um, kind of exciting to us. And so we went down that rabbit hole of, you know, going and building an Ethereum and eventually, you know, um, came out the other end, realizing that, hey, the, the innovation here at the end of the day really is Bitcoin. This is the thing that's, you know, going to improve things for humanity. And, you know, we never looked back. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, that's funny that your dad was like in the found out about Bitcoin, but then didn't really know how to use it. So you're using it for him. Is he like just like this anti-establishment guy in general, or is he just really into the currency side of things? Yeah, definitely, definitely anti-establishment, I would say. Uh, you know, he's he um, we're originally from I'm originally from the West Coast of Canada. So BC. So he's, mm. you know, he's got a boat ready to go to sail off to wherever, wherever he needs to, to to escape the you know regime up here in Canada. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, what is he saying now? Like, it must be crazy, right? Like, I, I probably wouldn't be able to to lose. I would lose my mind if I was in Canada, I think, right now. Well, well, it's funny. I, I feel like. You know that. Well, I think, feel like what we've learned over the past three years is that the the the, the conspiracy theorists are only six months off, right? Yep. Um, and so, uh, I mean, he's I mean, he's been complaining about uh, Canada and wanting to get out of Canada for a while. And uh, I don't know, maybe maybe if it eventually gets too bad, then then we'll go that direction. If Trudeau gets elected again, I think we're headed for a really tough situation up here. Um, Maybe there's some hope with an with an alternative, but uh, you know it's tough. But I mean, he was he was ahead of the curve with everything go that went on with COVID, um, which was which was really impressive, like the lab leak and you know just finding out about those things and realizing, hey, you know uh, what you think is a conspiracy theory ends up being true a couple months later. Yeah, I think it's like once you look at life through this lens of maybe just not trusting these centralized entities, you really can't go back. And then everything just kind of compounds from there. And it, it, it turns into all aspects of your life. And that's why, you know, for me, it was, you know, made so much sense, you know, Bitcoin and, you know, sovereignty through health and things like that, obviously. And then COVID happened. And it was like, oh, yeah, well, this is now extremely obvious what's going on. But yeah, for me, Canada, I never really understood the dynamic because so many of you live right near the U.S., all in big cities that there's not this maybe like 
back and forth like here like i'm in wyoming like living in wyoming compared to living in new york city or california is like a drastic difference same thing with texas and florida whereas in canada i don't know maybe if you live in like saskatchewan it's a bit more chill but it's just so many of you are in the big cities um i'd imagine yeah, that's that's very true. I, I I would say we have a similar thing, but as you're correct, like we all live right next to the border because because uh, you know no one wants to live up in Iqaluit for God's sake or um, or in the Yukon. And so, um, like if you live in 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 like Edmonton versus like Toronto, like that's that's a big difference, right? Um, if you live on Vancouver Island versus Vancouver, you know that's a big difference as well. And so I think you have that same thing. It's just all along this latitude, which is just right, right up against the uh, American border there. That's funny. I saw something hilarious the other week on Twitter. It was like, it would be so easy for the U.S. to take over Canada because literally like all 90% of you are within like 100 kilometers or 200 kilometers of the U.S. And yeah, what, what are you going to do about it? But it's like, oh, what do we gain? Uh, resources and some, some nice people. But um, yeah, it was just funny. It was hilarious. Well, 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 let's let's be honest. Like, like Canada is is the United States' largest trade partner, and uh, you know we we basically delegate uh, to you guys for our military. So uh, <laughs> it's, yeah, uh, it's as close it's it's as close as you can get to um, you know the the uh, what fifty second state as as you can. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so fascinating, but we'll see. Trudeau, man, his character. But back to Bitcoin. More importantly. So you went through this little Ethereum phase, I guess. So you were kind of just stoked on Bitcoin like the whole time, but maybe just building on Ethereum from a decentralization perspective was, was more attractive. Was that kind of what drew you in? And, and then I want to get into maybe like the smart contracts versus DLCs and how that difference is actually explained by someone who knows what they're talking about. But let's start with there. Is that kind of what attracted you to Ethereum in the first place? Yeah, I think I think we originally got attracted by just the ability to build like financial tools very easily. Um, and so, you know, us being, you know, we were we were, we were taking computer science at University of Waterloo. And so for, you know, developers like and even today, I would say like Ethereum has a very bustling you know, developer ecosystem even versus Bitcoin, because it's very easy when you're just focused on the what, right? Like, what can Ethereum do? Oh, it can do all these things. But if you're not focused on the why, then you miss the point. And so, um, you know, at the very beginning, we missed the point, let's be honest. And um, it was only through the process of actually, um, myself and Tony, we started working at Consensus, which obviously was run by Joe Lubin back in the day. But funny enough, I was working on a team called Liquality, and they were actually working on atomic swaps between Bitcoin and Ethereum. And on the team, there were some Bitcoin maximalists that were actually on the team. And they, they kind of taught me the values of Bitcoin, even, you know, kind of within this larger organization that was kind of pushing for different values. And so... Um, you know, they taught me things like, hey, like, why is the Bitcoin supply cap important? Why is it so important that Satoshi, you know, gave us this gift and then disappeared? Why, um, you know, why is it so important that, you know, Bitcoin doesn't doesn't change or when it does change, it goes through a software, you know, things of this nature. And so um, it was through that process that I got really familiar, obviously, with Ethereum development and Bitcoin development and was really able to see the differences between them. How are the philosophies, you know, kind of matching up? Um, 
And and that's kind of what got us down that that rabbit hole of understanding, well, hey, you know, that the ideas of how you build an Ethereum, um, you know, is really, hey, you build a smart contract, you kind of build this this honey pot, really. Um, you can update the contract whenever you want, you pull funds into it versus Bitcoin, which is like, hey, let's let's do as much of this peer-to-peer -peer and in a secure manner and in a safe manner and Let's make sure that the funds aren't at risk. And so these philosophies were constantly going back and forth. And so um, at the time, we actually took kind of the knowledge we had from Atomic Swaps and we pushed that over to, hey, um, you know, Atomic Swaps are interesting, but there's not really any like other financial tools for Bitcoin. What if we could do something with loans? So that brought us into Atomic Loans, where we built a cross-chain product for that. And then, then what happened? DeFi Summer. Uh, the tokens came in, the, the governance tokens, the money printing. And it, it came to the point where we realized if we want to survive in this kind of cross-chain or more being in you know, DeFi Ethereum, that we were going to have to go out there and actually create a token ourselves. And that was never something that we felt comfortable with doing. And so we then started looking around and saying, okay, well, actually, you know, why don't we just build this on Bitcoin itself? And at this time, DLCs were really starting to come to fruition. And we'll get to, I guess we'll talk a little bit about what is a DLC, but basically, you know, being able to create contracts directly on Bitcoin. And then we ended up going down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting, right? Because I think there is this like very attractive allure to Ethereum and, and building on Ethereum and yeah, creating these projects. And yeah, a lot of Bitcoiners kind of went down this rabbit hole, not, not for me for like building, but just the attractiveness. And then I was always skeptical. My friends were like back in 2017, you're like, yeah, let's figure out something to do an ICO. I was like, we don't even have an idea. They're like, no, but we could just raise money. I was like, this sat just is such a scam. And then Svetsky was on. He said the same thing. He was like about to go do a token. And they read all these white papers and was just like, this is an absolute scam. And I think after the ICO craze, I was pretty much convinced as well that a lot of these tokens, it was just, you know, just to make one. And I had friends trying to, you know, exploit that and, and what have you. And for me, it was, yeah, you're young. You're just trying to be in this like new, exciting area of blockchain technology and whatever that changes, which we know now <laughs> it's a lot. The blockchain itself is, is not the core principle that's most important. Um, and then eventually for me, I was like really digging down into the decentralization rabbit hole. And I was like, yeah, there's only, it's only Bitcoin really that can actually say it's, it's decentralized. So was there any friction between you and Tony and just like your, the people you're around making that transition? Because one thing that's for sure is toxic, like, you know, relationships between the two and Bitcoiners, Ethereum maximalists, and that still holds true today. I, I still think actually the Bitcoin space is, is very, you know, defensive and for good reason. So many people have gotten scammed in the last, you know, four years from tokens, but um, yeah, how was that kind of transition? Was it weird? Hey, friend, thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you left us a five star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education.
It was, um, you know, it was a gradual process. I think that um, within our team, I was, um, I was really, I would always been trying to push, I think, Tony towards like, hey, like we should focus more on Bitcoin. Hey, this is possible on Bitcoin. And I, I mean, I tried to be as convincing as I could. And, and uh, um, he, I think he was never like truly convinced until he sat down and actually read the Bitcoin standard. And then after reading that book, you know, that's when the light bulb went off. Um, I guess for me, like it came from like learning from the team I had been on previously and kind of what their values were. But once that light bulb went off, like then it became obvious, I think, to say, um, you know, hey, like, you know, what were what it was it actually was really a question of ourselves, right? It was really a question of the infrastructure that we're building today, you know, what's going to be around for the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years, right? Is it going to be these smart contracts on Ethereum, right? Is Ethereum going to be around in the next 200 years? I don't know. Is Bitcoin? I have a lot more conviction that Bitcoin is going to be. So why don't we build infrastructure for Bitcoin that is going to be able to, you know, be utilized for the long term and, you know, really change our um, our view on that. And, and on the, I mean, on the topic of like, thinking of like all these tokens and, and ICOs, it, it really feels like humanity just relearned how to print money again, right? Like the, we just learned, hey, we can, we can print money and people learn that they can grift in that way. And I never think that that was the, you know, that I don't think like Satoshi came into big, building Bitcoin with that intention at all. And so that seems to me like the main, you know, that's such a big difference from Bitcoin versus everything else. Um, it's funny how psychology of humanity is just repetitive, right? Like no matter what happens, like if you put people in this opportunity to take advantage of other people, like they're going to do it or they take the easy way out. And and that's what it seemed like as well from a building perspective. And, and that's why I think Ethereum is, is attractive. And maybe you can shed some light on that, like building on Bitcoin is seems to be more challenging, less attractive. There's yeah, more kind of, you know, less freedom in terms of what's going on. So how how did that go in the beginning? Yeah, I mean, I think like what you encounter with Ethereum is that um anyone can just any JavaScript developer can just come in and write up a smart contract and they can push it up there and you can do whatever and you can reuse lots of things, you know, you can we talk about the Jenga tower a lot, the idea of, hey, you know, they like to talk about in terms of like, um, you know, building blocks and, and sure, there's some aspects of that that are interesting. But when you have, hey, like this token that's wrapped, that's then wrapped into another thing, you know, the earning yield and, you know, that's wrapped into another thing and you just have all these building blocks on top of each other. So I think like what if Ethereum enables is folks to bootstrap very easily and, and spin up an application that's very... Um, you know, in a very simple manner that can reuse lots of stuff. Like imagine if you want to build a, a D, like a DeFi application today, right? You write up a smart contract. Maybe you want to create an alternative to Uniswap. Maybe it's like um, some type of lending application. You write up your smart contract, um, you bootstrap it. You, maybe you create a token, you get people to put, you know, funds in there. Um, you give out token rewards, right? And and you, you're, all you do is you put up a website and you wrote a smart contract and that's all you had to do. Um, and you know, you can reuse all these other things in the ecosystem versus like building in Bitcoin, right? Um, you know, when we started DLC, like the type of contracts being built on top of Bitcoin were really in their, their infancy. 
And so you, we had to build like first the software to be able to construct these. There's no wallet application to utilize them. So we had to build the wallet application. We have to build the backend infrastructure for like a market maker, maker to be able to interact with them. So there's a lot more steps involved in that. But the, the main difference I think is that when you look at something like Ethereum, like a smart contract, um, there's a lot of surface area of attack, right? Everyone's piling their funds into that one smart contract. And so the potential for a hack to occur is very, very large. Whereas in Bitcoin, the kind of nature of it is more peer to peer. And so if you're entering into a contract on Bitcoin, it's usually with a direct counterparty. And so it's very unlikely that someone's going to be able to come in and actually hack that contract. Um, there's no there's no admin or no like admin multisig at the end of the day that kind of has control over your funds. And I think that's the that's really the key difference. Okay, so you're saying because because of proof of stake and just the amount of people that are you know, creating smart contracts is making it more susceptible to to hacks. Um, am I understanding uh, that correctly? Yeah, not quite. I think it has more to do with like if you think of how folks are um, like building Ethereum smart contracts, you might have someone that so say I want to build an Ethereum smart contract. I go, I write up the contract, but usually the way they do it is so that it's upgradable, right? So um, mm. you might have like various different functions. So like, oh, I lend and then I'm owed this much amount of money. But the problem is um, you have like one admin of the contract that can upgrade it, right? So and usually that's like some type of admin multi-sig, you know, a three of five or six, six of eight or, or whatever it is. And they can go and upgrade it at any moment. And that causes lots of problems because then they can introduce some type of bug and maybe they even take advantage of that themselves. So I think it has more to do with the actual architecture of it that results in these type of um, vulnerabilities being introduced versus, you know, kind of the default architecture that exists in Bitcoin. It's kind of the concept of like in Ethereum, you have an accounts-based blockchain versus in Bitcoin, it's a UTXO-based blockchain, which results in these various, very different architectures being built. So this admin kind of like writes, is that on every smart contract then on the Ethereum blockchain? That's just kind of how it works. And you're saying like compared to Bitcoin DLCs, for example, that's just strictly peer-to-peer, -peer, like it is what it is. Yeah, so so on uh, it's really a design choice. So most smart contracts enable something like this um where they'll they'll say, you know, how how are we going to be able to allow this to be updated? Um or they do something where it can be upgraded with the use of like a a governance vote and so that you know results mm, in yeah. other vulnerabilities as well. And so it's it's kind of like decentralization theater, I would call it. Um <laughs> Versus like, and, and, and certainly you have like some aspects of, of centralization that exists on Bitcoin as well, right? So what, I guess we should first talk about like, what is a DLC? Uh, we've mentioned it a couple of times. Um, a DLC is basically a Bitcoin Oracle contract. So what it allows you to do is it allows for any type of financial um, contract to be created on the Bitcoin blockchain. This could be a bet. This could be, you know, um, some type of lending application. Uh, it could be a futures contract or an options contract, which is one of the things that we're focused on. And so um, within that, within a, a, a DLC, you obviously need an oracle, right? You need someone to report on the Bitcoin price in order for you to speculate on the price in some manner. And so obviously you run into centralization there, right? But but at least in that, but you know that, that's a problem that can't be solved. You're not going to get the Bitcoin price from the Bitcoin blockchain itself. You need to get it from external. 
And so there you can have, um, you know, one Oracle or a multi Oracle system, but at least you're just relying on the Oracle for that one price feed and you're not relying on it for the actual contract itself. The other thing too, the Oracle doesn't even need to know about your contract. It's just like putting data out there. Whereas like when you're looking at an Ethereum smart contract, really the, you know, the admin is obviously in control of all of the code that's associated with that contract. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that makes a lot more sense. Now, I, I just wasn't familiar with if that was like a requirement for all Ethereum smart contracts or that's a design choice. Um, but inherently that, yeah, that gives a lot of power to kind of one entity to be able to change it. So that's definitely an issue. And yeah, yeah the oracles are interesting because this was a whole rush, you know, chain link and the lot. But from what I'm understanding, like a multi-Oracle approach is, is kind of better. Maybe you could shed some light on that. And is there even like a winner takes all or, you know, what, what is the worth of, of these Oracles in the marketplace? Because it seems like they have some worth, but it is kind of like a basic, you know, fundamental thing. Maybe not as, as hype as, as everyone thought back two years ago. Yeah, I think there was a little bit of um, an interesting... Like we should compare like probably like um, what exists in terms of oracles on Ethereum versus versus Bitcoin as well. And so I think there was this big hype and kind of this idea that um, in Ethereum, I think everyone had this concept that we're going to go and build oracles and they are going to be decentralized oracles. And I think that was really, you know, a misnomer to say, uh, you know, that that wasn't really true. If you're just, um, you know, spreading the risk to 15 uh, anonymous parties. You know, um, it's really decentralized theater because you don't know if those 15 other folks are are the same person or, you know, different people. You just don't know that. Um, and not to mention the fact that Ethereum also ran into lots of problems with uh, gas fees um, when when you had like oracles needing to actually attest to a price. Right. Um, they have to put that data on chain. So they actually have to create a transaction in order um, to update the state for folks to utilize that for different smart contracts. Um, and so and 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 so that doesn't mean there's no worth to oracles, right? It just means like those are different design choices that exist in Ethereum, but the design choices are very, very different in Bitcoin, right? Um, oracles on Bitcoin using DLCs, they don't need to create a on-chain transaction. They simply create a Schnorr signature, right? Um, for like whatever the outcome is. So that signature is then used to be able to unlock the DLCs, but they don't need to know about the contracts that are created on chain on Bitcoin. They're simply creating these signatures in the background. Um, and one of the nice things about DLCs too is, you know, what's the worst case scenario, right? Um, say the Oracle goes out there and they create an attestation, um, you know, uh, or, or say, say, say the Oracle disappears actually, right? You also have a refund transaction that can be utilized to get your principal investment back. So there's a lot of these mechanisms that exist in there. And then obviously um, adding additional oracles if they're reputable. If you're doing the same thing as Ethereum and you're just saying, hey, we're going to get 15 anonymous participants and they're going to come in here and um, uh, provide like um, some type of price attestation, then you're, you know, you're, you're doing decentralization theater once again. Uh, but if it's like, hey, I've got like this reputable exchange or this reputable company that's providing this price feed, then that's really who you're putting your trust in. Um, and so I think that's really the, the key difference. Yeah, that it seems like there's just a lot more risk because of the centralized nature of Ethereum, which fundamentally is, yeah, what you would assume, 
but you still hear just all about smart contracts and smart contracts and why they're so great. We could just drop smart contract and essentially like DLCs. I think of them, they're still like smart contracts. They're just like in the greater bucket. They're just different because they're on Bitcoin. They have a bit different fundamentals. Um, so why don't we maybe run through an example of, of how that works? If, you know, say you and I bet that, yeah, Trudeau like wins or loses the election, whenever that is, I have no idea when that is. How does that work on the Bitcoin blockchain, like from the inception to the execution and the whole lot? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. First, I just wanted to say, like, yeah, I agree with you. I think DLCs are smart contracts, but I think they're um, they're like simple smart contracts, right? It's like keep it simple, stupid, right? <laughs> or keep keep it stupid, simple, um, you know, just make it as simple as possible. And, and that's the nature of it. So if we go into it, like, say you and me are entering into a bet. Um, Geez, who's 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 voting for Trudeau? I don't think either of us want to do that. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll vote for him since I don't live there. So I think. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> well, thanks, Tristan. Just 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 because there has to be someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. So Tristan's voting for voting for Trudeau. I'm voting for. I guess I'll do the the opposing guy right now, which is Pierre Paul Lever. He's he's. I think he's a Bitcoiner. He, he's he's on his way there. So we'll we'll see. Closet so, Bitcoiner. Closet Bitcoin, yeah, exactly. He's he's been to Tahini's. He's been to he he bought like a sandwich using Bitcoin or whatever. But say say we're say we're entering into this contract, right? So so Tristan, um, so generally in the DLC, what happens is you somehow you need to like tell you know discover your other counterparty, right? So we with Atomic Finance, we make this really easy. Like obviously, um, uh, we do matching using uh, like IRC protocol. So just a protocol, you see the protocol in the background for the parties to know about each other. But once you've got that, the process of entering is kind of simple, um, in terms of like someone creating an offer. So I, I might say, Hey, I'm, I'm voting for, you know, Polyevra. Um, and then, you know, Tristan sends back an accept message that says, Hey, okay, sounds good. Um, here's my UTXOs. Here's like, um, all of the possible outcomes that we have. So we might have three possible outcomes, you know, either Trudeau wins, Holy ever wins or like um, contested, right? Which might mean, mean some type of refund. Um, and so, and so we go and we create the signatures for those three possible outcomes. Um, he sends the accept back to me. I create the sign message, and then Tristan can actually go and then broadcast that on chain. So what that looks like is actually very similar to a, a lightning channel, um, where you have got like a two of two multi sig. It's a, it's a very similar thing for DLCs. And that will just sit there, right? So, um, I, you know, the elections, I, I don't think it's still in 2025. So I guess our Bitcoin's sitting there for two years. We have, uh, you know, we don't have short time preference. And so it's just sitting there. Eventually the Oracle goes and creates that attestation. And behind the scenes, we've already created um, the execution transactions for all the possible outcomes in the background. And what happens is when the Oracle actually creates the attestation, let's say, um, uh, let's say, Let's say Polly ever wins, because I don't want to think of the future when if Trudeau wins. <laughs> um, so let's say Polly ever wins, and then they go and create that attestation. I take that signature and I use it to unlock that off-chain transaction, um, and then I I can go and and put that on the uh, you know uh, broadcast that on the Bitcoin blockchain. So at all times, like on-chain, all it is is a two of two multi-sig with some off-chain signatures, very similar to what you have in Lightning. Where you have you know a two of two multi-sig with some possible um, uh, state updates in the background, so that's really all a DLC is. 
you know, what's the chance that someone can come in and actually hack that contract or a signature is inc created incorrectly? Very, very unlikely. Um, in fact, like the only person that might be able to take advantage of that is really my counterpart, right? Um, which, you know, if you've constructed everything properly is very unlikely to happen. We've been running DLCs for like two years with like without any issues or any need to, you know, have a refund transaction. So these are really, really secure. Is there any concern with like, you know, the amount of Bitcoin that's stuck in there in the contract, like Lightning Channel, you know, there's limitations to, to bandwidth and things like that. Is that a concern at all for DLCs? Like if you wrote like just an insanely large contract in terms of, I guess, size of what it is or the actual Bitcoin? Yeah, so I think it's a little bit different than Lightning, where um, Lightning, you need to do several hops along like the, the different uh, channels or different nodes. And so that's why, you know, if you're doing a very large payment, it you know, uh, oftentimes fails because there's not enough liquidity along one of those hops. Whereas if you're doing an on-chain DLC, you know, you could put one, five, 10, 15, 20 Bitcoin, however much you want, and it's just directly with your counterparty. So, you know, as long as it's peer-to-peer. Um, there's a different conversation of like, hey, this is also possible on Lightning, like Lightning DLCs, and you can do this across multiple hops. But to be honest, I think that's going to be nonsense because, um, you know, say we're entering into that bet that we just talked about, you know, Polyevra versus Trudeau, uh, Canadian election, we would need to, everyone along those hops would need to lock their funds for the next two years, right? And who wants to do that? Um, and so I think it's more likely that, you know, um, People are going to do, you know, on-chain DLCs where they enter into a contract with a with a counterparty on-chain, or they open up a Lightning channel with the direct counterparty that they want to, you know, do some trading with, and then that's, you know, what they'll do within that that Lightning channel. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I figured that was kind of a stupid question, but I had to ask it because I know there's a lot of folks listening who probably have a very basic understanding of, of Lightning, but that's more so, like you said, a liquidity um, issue amongst uh, the nodes. So. That that makes a lot of sense to me. And then I guess where we transition to here is obviously most people are not going to you know be writing up their own contracts and things like that. It's very technical. Well, it's simple, but it still yeah requires skills that I don't have. So that's kind of where Atomic Finance steps in, and it's really cool because it is pretty simple. And yeah, you have this security on the Bitcoin you know chain. So I guess at a high level. Atomic Finance is, you know, focused, you guys are focused on providing yield on Bitcoin. And that's, as mentioned, a kind of scary word right now after what went down in the, you know, previous two years with FTX, BlockFi, Celsius, and the lot. What is Atomic, how is Atomic utilizing DLCs to do this differently? And then we could obviously get into to self-custody but maybe we start with the the dlc is like you're basically just providing an on and off ramp for these contracts for people right yeah exactly so I, I think first um to break this down like what we're trying to build with atomic really is to make it as simple as possible for people to be able to access not only kind of these more advanced con concepts like dlcs like what is a dlc how do i use it what if it's just in an app and it's a click of a button and it's super simple? That's really what we're trying to enable for folks is for open finance to be simple and easy for folks. Um, but then like on the other hand, this, this concept of yield, right? Like after the last year, that's a scary term. What is yield? Where is the yield coming from? If you don't know where the yield is coming from, 
you are the yield, right? We've heard that so many times. We had BlockFi disappear, FTX disappear, um, Celsius, you know, disappear. I think they're in the courts right now. Um, so much nonsense that has happened. And so our, our real goal there was to provide a way for folks of if, uh, to know exactly where the yield is actually coming from. And so what we've developed um, is, uh, you know, we've taken, uh, you know, trading strategies specifically around options that we've developed. Um, and what our app does is offers those, you know, those strategies to users using DLCs. Um, so we use what's called a, a covered call strategy. So what is that? It's, so first of all, what's an option, right? What's an, what's an options contract? Um, it's basically just, um, it's kind of like a, I like to describe it maybe as like a coupon, right? Like you have a, you pay, you pay for a coupon to be able to buy Bitcoin at a certain price. So say today, like for example, the, the Bitcoin price is $26,000. You know, so maybe I want to buy a coupon and to, to be able to buy Bitcoin at $30,000 um, and say if Bitcoin goes all the way up to 35, you know, I can buy it at a, at a cheaper price. The reverse of that is selling a call. Um, and so you can do that in a covered call, uh, which is like, hey, if I might sell a call, I might sell the ability for someone to buy Bitcoin at $30,000 today. And in return, I get to I get to earn a return from from that coupon that I'm selling. And so what this allows is folks to be able to, you know, uh, earn a return on their Bitcoin. You know, if I'm selling a call for, you know, $30,000 or maybe next week I'm doing it for 35, I'm earning a return every single time. And so what we've done is we've, built a strategy that automates the process of choosing when to take those positions. We always do weekly options, right? So it's not like you're saying, uh, oh, okay, $30,000 you know, $30, Bitcoin by like the end of the year or next year, right? That, that's a huge amount of time to wait. We're doing a, you know, a position that ends next week. Um, and so we've, we've done a lot of work on uh, you know, the trading side of things to ensure that um, we build a very conservative strategy to make sure that likelihood of that um, of that hitting is very low. And if it does, you know, there's not a large, large loss. Um, yeah, maybe we'll break that down a little more. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, the call options are definitely, you know, a lot of people might be familiar with them from trading stocks. Like these, this is a traditional, you know, trading strategy tool. Um that people have been using for quite some time. To me, I, I think of it as like, yeah, like a strategic bet that you're kind of making on on the price, right? And depending on the time frame, um, you can get into that. And it's it's interesting because you you do still have to realize that there is always some risk to trading, call options, things like that. Um, but the way you guys have done it is you're saying, you know, you take a very conservative strategy, you've got this down to a science. And this is where the yield is coming from. Um, and I would ask, yeah, how how transparent are you? Because I guess let me break it down first, because I have gone through the, you know, the onboarding and stuff with Tony is right now you guys have like this one conservative strategy. And when you put in your Bitcoin, you're kind of locked into that for a period of time. Um, and then you can add more Bitcoin, you can pull it out, whatever. But what I was asking Tony is, you know, are you guys going to be like transparent with your strategies at all? Because what I see is that's kind of cool is, you know, people think that certain things are going to happen in the market right now. Like right now, for example, people might be a little bearish based on what's going on with interest rate hikes. So they might want to align that 
with what you guys are doing. And obviously it could be completely different time frames. Like one week time frames are, are very short in general. And most average everyday people don't consider weekly time frames on Bitcoin predictions. So how do you balance that like transparency and then kind of like the I guess you could call it just the strategy that you've worked out based on your trading history and you know predictive mechanisms? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think in general, when it comes to strategies, um, obviously, transparency is something that's very, very important to us. And, and that's kind of part of why we're building these tools, right? Open finance that are, you know, transparent to see exactly what's going on. But there's also another side of it, which is there's a reason that like most, you know, um, uh, you know, proprietary trading firms don't reveal how their strategies are done, right? Because um, once people know how a strategy is done, you know, a whale can come in and replicate it. And now, you know, the potential returns you would have gotten from that are gone. And, and there's an even a, a worse potential for, you know, folks to be trading against you, which is obviously dangerous. And so for that reason, we don't publish exactly how, um, you know, we generate the signals, but we do provide a, um, transparency on like what those signals are at the time that they come in. So, you know, if you're using the Atomic Finance app, for example, you'll get a notification that says, hey, this cover call position was entered. Um, and, and typically, like, you know, this isn't happening like every single week, too. This, you know, sometimes um, sometimes there's no trades in the month because it's not always a good time to enter a position. Right. You might have one trade per month, two trades per month, three trades per month. Right. Um, and so you go and you get that signal. And that lets you know that, hey, you know, a position has been entered. Um, but it's really about like trying to make it as, as simple as possible for folks. And um, the way I like to think about it, too, is people might think, hey, a cover call. Um, you know, I'm really bullish on Bitcoin right now. I don't want to enter, you know, that that position. But what's really interesting about it is the strategy is really more about monetizing volatility of Bitcoin. Right. As we transition over the next 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years to eventually a Bitcoin standard, right? There's, a, there's an opportunity to make returns on your Bitcoin during that time. And actually during the bull market is where we see very, very high volatility of Bitcoin. That's actually where we see the largest returns in the strategy, which is um, you know, really fascinating. And you know, that's just the, the nature of options, really. Yeah, I think that patience that you guys follow is, is key because the average well first off it's it's this weird mm, audience that you have for your products right now because the traditional person would think nothing about you know giving someone their fiat getting a return you know hedge funds they don't reveal their strategies you know ray dalio might come out and be like i'm bearish <laughs> or bullish or whatever and it's it's similar all around but bitcoiners you know are very in tune with the market. They think they're smarter than everyone and they probably want to know uh, exactly what's going on. But inherently, yeah, that's not like a common thing. But I think it's important that you highlighted what your strategy is. And that's, yeah, you're not like forcing positions. There might be three trades in a month. There might be one in three months. It just depends on the signal. So that shows that you have this down to science. And if it hits your threshold, that's good. But you're not going to like kind of change the the goalposts just to enter in a position and i think based on that you have a, a very good track record and what my question to tony was as well when we first talked about is is how do you prevent you know five wins getting erased by one loss and i think you have a pretty good downside track record as well like when it does happen it's pretty minimal hit on the overall yield gain 
for yeah so let's say like a year long period yeah so the i think on the strategy currently the historically um and this this is obviously going to vary from strategy to strategy so the current cover call strategy um it has a largest the, the largest downside uh risk was i think like 1.17 uh, percent over the course of um you know historical trading um done over the course of you know the past four years and so um, that's obviously really solid. And um, we also did a lot of work to make sure, like whenever you're developing a strategy, for folks that know about strategy development, um, one of the really important things is to make sure that there's uh, not what's called overfitting, right? So if I wanna go develop a strategy, I could just say, hey, you know what? Um, over the past like couple of years, I'm gonna sell at 65,000 and I'm gonna buy back in at 15, you know, or 17,000, right? That strategy is gonna perform very, very well, right? But obviously we all know it's extremely overfit, right? Like I just looked back in time. And so what we did is um, we actually used signal generation going all the way back to 2012. Um, and then in the process, uh, we, we do what a, a, a process that's called like walk forward analysis, where we actually look at, okay, um, we've, we've tested it over this period of time. Now we're gonna go simulate live trading over the next like year or two years and see how it performs. And so in that way, you get um, a strategy that's much more likely to, um, to perform quite well in a real environment rather than just someone who's picking numbers um, you know, out of a hat um, you know, with historical previous data. Um, Are you interested in 100% grass-fed, grass-finished bison meat? I'm excited to be a partner with Falls Family Ranches. Based in Wyoming, Falls Family Ranches is raising high quality bison meat the way nature intended. As a native large ruminant of North America, bison is one of the most nutrient dense foods you can consume. If you're interested in trying out their bison boxes, use code TRISTAN, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, 10, for 10% off your first order. So yeah. And that's led to what I think the average yield is like seven, eight percent, right? So far. And this is with the conservative strategy, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So I think I think right now it's seven, I believe it's seven and a half percent APY um on average over the past four years. It's been a little bit lower lately just because Bitcoin volatility has been lower. And so, you know, that's the nature of the strategy. You can have um, you know, if you're making eight percent or seven and a half percent in a year. You know, you might make, um, you know, six, 6% of that, uh, or you, you might make the, like the majority of that during the course of six months, and then the next six months is lower. And that's just the nature of the strategy. Um, and so it's, you know, that's one of the reasons it's important to be consistent. Um, we're also going to be like releasing some additional strategies as well that are a little bit different. Um, we have some long call strategies um, in the pipeline that are coming very soon, have a much like, you know, kind of larger drawdown, but are much more aggressive on the way up. And so we're really excited to, you know, get that out to folks. Usually what we say is like, hey, um, you know, put the majority of your Bitcoin in cold storage. Um, but if, you know, if you want to take one, you know, five, 10 percent of your Bitcoin and put it towards these type of strategies, it's really just an opportunity to, to you know, take advantage of monetizing volatility for Bitcoin um, and, you know, make that you know, make those additional returns. But don't be, you know, don't be going out there and gambling your whole stack on, um, you know, a long call here or, uh, you know, a short call there. Yeah. Yeah, that's important advice because yeah, the average person who thinks, yeah, this is amazing. Yeah, this is this is a tool. I think it's important because yeah, you know, we're still early, right? Like so if you do make seven, ten percent a year on Bitcoin now, 
um, it, it could make a significant difference in, you know, five, 10 years. And yeah, potentially also in a bear market, you know, instead of holding and just, yeah, seeing your net worth drop, you could maybe, you know, accumulate a little bit more Bitcoin by just having 10% or whatever in, you know, a contract like this, in a strategy like this. So that's interesting. I also see that on your app, you also have manual calls and uh, things, options you can do. Is is that something that you think is going to be popular? Like you think people are going to enjoy that? I, I think it is based on the trading nature of Bitcoiners. But I see, again, yeah, be careful with what you do there. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, one of the nice things is we're introducing manual very soon, and uh, we're specifically uh, going to be introducing, uh, you know, uh, long calls and long puts. And so, uh, as I mentioned previously, long calls and long puts, that's like you pay the coupon in order to be able to buy Bitcoin at a certain price or um, buy Bitcoin at a lower price for puts. Um, now, this is all Bitcoin settled. So you're not worried about actually, you know, we're not dealing with USD. It's all, you know, a Bitcoin native app, which is really, really cool and really nice. Um, but I think there will be some excitement for that because if, you know, even during a bear market, if you're expecting, if you're sitting here and, and you know, over the next couple of months, you know that the, the United States government needs to sell $3 billion worth of, worth of Bitcoin that they've, you know, acquired from FTX, then, um, you know, you might be expecting some downwards movement. And so something like buying a put can be really attractive to folks because um, it can give you an opportunity to be able to um, take advantage of, you know, price movement downwards in order to stack, you know, more stats. And so we've seen um, a lot of our users already seen, a, you know, a lot of interest in this. So we're really excited to get those those features out and, you know, allow for you know people to obviously speculate. Um, obviously, be, you know, stay safe out there. Don't uh, don't be a degen gambler, but uh um, you know, and, and make sure you do your research before, uh, you know, you're, you, you try uh, trading options for sure. Yeah, I, I think that's really important that you said that because it may seem obvious, but every time the cycles happen, no one really gets top right. No one really gets the bottom. I mean, to me, like, yeah, 15K when we were there, I was like, yeah, this is looking very bottomy. Um, I'm going to buy some Bitcoin here. But you never know. And the fact that, yeah, maybe you take a small percentage and, and again, you're hedging, you're hedging to the downside. And, and I like having that ability to do that. I think that's, that's really nice. But I guess it's, it's still trading, right? Like you just have to think of it like that. You are taking risk. But the most important part of atomic finance that we haven't covered is the custodial aspect of it. So what is atomic doing different from BlockFi and Celsius in this regard? It's a very obvious answer, but. Let's hear it. <laughs> yeah, great, great question. So, I mean, we should look at first, what does BlockFi and Celsius do? They, they take your Bitcoin, it sits there, and then they go and lend that Bitcoin out. They go do things with it. They, they lend it out to someone who lends it out to someone else. And then you hope at the end of the day, you're going to be able to get that back. But if anyone along the line, like something goes wrong, you know, that, that Bitcoin is nowhere to be seen. And so obviously what we're doing, you know, the whole time talking about DLCs and you know, uh, contracts on top of Bitcoin, that's how we allow folks to get access to these positions. So when, uh, so the whole thing really is non-custodial at the end of the day, um, you're entering into this with a counterparty, which is our market maker uh, uh, called Calypso. And so they take the other side of the trade. We run the, run the Oracle. So obviously you do need to have trust in us, you know, as the Oracle. We do have plans later on to move to a multi-Oracle system. Um, but, you know, that's really where your trust is going. But you, you don't need to worry about 
you know, uh, us sitting there and like running away with your Bitcoin. We don't have custody of it. We don't want custody of it. We want you to hold your own Bitcoin at the end of the day. Um, and that's that's the really, I think, the way that financial tools for Bitcoin should be built, right? If we're going to just keep sitting here and build, you know, custodial financial tools for Bitcoin, we're going to end up with FTX in the future. We're going to end up with BlockFi in the future. And so, um, you know, why is it that, you, you know, you, if you think of Bitcoin, right, you have cold storage, you know, you might put that in your cold card. You've got lightning that's non-custodial. But if you want to do anything financial related, you have to go to an exchange. And I think that needs to change. And so we're trying to be kind of like the one of the first folks in the industry that's really trying to trying to push that more and get more financial tools for Bitcoin that are non-custodial. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's so important because it's needed. And if you want more people to come on board, like my mom, for example, like owns some Bitcoin, but you know, I was trying to, I, I need to get her cold storage. I need to get her up to speed on things. It's like, this is like a perfect solution for someone who's like familiar with, you know, traditional hedge funds and how they operate and investing and people kind of, yeah, having simple solutions so that you don't really have to worry about it too much. And that's probably why, you know, BlockFi, I mean, all these exchanges, Coinbase, they're so attractive because it's like, oh, I just buy Bitcoin, I leave it in there, I don't really have to think about it. Um, but obviously that has a tremendous amount of risk uh, that people don't realize. And yeah, this is just, I think, the the beginning, but it's really cool. And what I want to get into first before maybe other financial tools is the the wallet. So you guys had to build a you know a wallet on Atomic Finance. How is this wallet structured? What's the you know security of it? Should anyone be concerned having you know ten percent of their stack in there at any time? I guess give the details of of that. Yeah, great question. So we use uh, we built um, we built the app initially uh, iOS only, um, and uh, uh, one of the reasons for that is because Apple has some. Um, some security elements that are are really nice, uh, that, you know, the secure enclave. So your your private key is stored within the secure secure enclave on the device itself, um, and the only way that can be accessed is obviously with a with a pin or uh, face ID can also access that as well. And and so you know if if someone wants to get access to your you know private key on this device, they're you know. Uh, you know, it's it's a lot more difficult than you know just having something in you know in, in plain text on some other type of device. Um, so we built it that way on purpose. And the other really nice thing as well is once you've got your funds in the device itself, generally you're investing in kind of a longer term strategy. So if you're investing your funds into say the cover call strategy for a month at a time, well now your funds are actually in a two of two multi sig, which is the DLC, right? And so um, you know even if someone comes along and, and does a wrench attack. You know they're not going to be able to get those those funds right away, and so um, and so that's kind of how we think about the security there. Obviously, we have lots lots more things planned in the future, um, like say adding things like two FA or even um, being able to have like uh, you know some type of multi sig setup um, that can allow you to you know store that uh, with the device and in, in addition you know a hardware device as well. Uh, but that'll be coming down the line for sure. Nice. That's exciting to hear um, because, yeah, I, I know the yeah the storage aspect has definitely been a hot topic lately and people are taking a lot of responsibility in that, which is fantastic. So, but yeah, there's always a work in progress. And at the end of the day, it's, uh, it is your keys. Uh, so that's fantastic that you guys obviously have that principle that nobody else is doing. Um, what other products 
are on the horizon for Atomic. I, you know, something that's always interesting is, is kind of Bitcoin-backed loans. And I'd love to get into that a little bit because there's this nice, you know, way potentially in the future that you could, you know, never have to sell your Bitcoin. You just hodl and get Bitcoin-backed loans. But obviously, there is always some risk and the volatility is still somewhat high. So how does that work? That's something you guys are planning on doing, correct? Yeah, I think for eventually. that, like, eventually we might look at um, uh, doing something in that arena. Like, on the immediate horizon is really more focused on, like, getting some more strategies into the app. Um, we're launching long calls and long puts. Down the line, we want to look at, like, short calls and short puts, likely. Um, and so, um, really, there's lots more work to kind of do in this arena around options. Um, uh, and then maybe in the future, like, venturing into... Um, into into loans again like obviously that was a you know previous product that we did um there's actually another um dlc company lava that is actually doing some work with um bitcoin back loans um, i think that in general they are a great tool to allow folks to be able to take advantage of you know um getting access to the value of your bitcoin without you know selling it or um you know like say say today right like bitcoin prices at twenty six thousand. Um, you know, it might drop, you know, all the way down to 20,000. But if I take out, you know, a, a small loan on my Bitcoin, $10,000 loan, $5,000 loan, and I use that, and then, you know, later on, Bitcoin, you know, continues to rise as we move into the bull market, you know, I have avoided selling, selling my Bitcoin. But there's also another like kind of darker version of the story, you know, people who take out a loan, you know, at a very high um, kind of ratio at the top. And, you know, Bitcoin continues to, to drop and they end up having to pay that off. And then they're not able to take advantage of buying Bitcoin at lower prices. And so, um, it can, you know, as, as anything, like with these financial tools, it's a tool at the end of the day, right? It can be, you can use it in the right, you know, you know in, a, in a positive manner or it can be used in a manner that um, ends up biting you in the butt. And so I think that's, that's something to be really careful of. Yeah, to me, it seems very risky and it's... Yeah, in this, it might be early. Like, I think in general, it's volatility, maybe. I don't know. The volatility piece is something that's interesting. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that, because obviously, with the supply, you know, continuing to decrease uh, in terms of additional circulating supply, every block, every four years, every having, people think the volatility will come down. People think that obviously that's dependent on the US dollar. So it could still increase over time. But yeah, you're just kind of taking a kind of a, a risky bet and it would be very terrible to get called on, on your Bitcoin. So at the end of the day, uh, there's still other alternatives, I think, maybe in the fiat world that, that could be better. But yeah, what are your thoughts on, on the volatility of Bitcoin over time? Because you would think that it comes down, that potentially then would affect you know your business model uh, or your strategies because you are taking advantage of volatility. But at the end of the day, like I said, it's really probably dependent on the U.S. dollar and macro environment of everything. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. Actually, we had the lowest um, the lowest volatility environment over the past couple of months. That's one of the reasons why like premiums have generally been lower on Bitcoin. Uh, I fully expect that to to come back during the bull market, um, which it does kind of every every cycle. Um, but I think it's likely that we're going to see general like. If you just think of it, right, if we continue to have more growth in Bitcoin over time, it takes more and more money in order to move the price up or down. And so as we get the growth of this asset, 
um, we really start trending towards, um, you know, a, a stable coin, right? Like eventually, eventually options on Bitcoin aren't going to make any sense, right? There's no, there's no options on, um, on US dollar itself, right? Because the premiums would be so infinitely small. And so, I mean, eventually, eventually our business, you know, decades and decades and decades down the line is going to be obsolete, right? But we have a long ways to go before that happens. And when that does happen, it's likely that Bitcoin is just going to be the settlement layer. And so I think um, slowly over time, we're likely going to see um, volatility increase during the bull markets and, and kind of, um, uh, you know, come down dramatically during the bear markets. And if that's going to continue to happen and the volatility is going to decrease more and more over time, as long as Bitcoin um, kind of continues to rise with each bull and bear cycle. Um, and I think that's just the, you know, that's just the natural progression that you expect. Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah, you could mix in, obviously, some volatility from the U.S. dollar money printing, all that jazz. But overall, you know, if our market cap just continues to, to grow in the trillions, then it's going to be harder to move the needle. So I'm curious as well, do you think these four-year cycles are going to be a thing forever? Or do you think they're just going to slowly become, well, they'll slowly become less and less pronounced, as you said. But yeah. They seem to always be priced in, but then they're not. Well, it's like, well, I always wonder this too, Tris. I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this because I feel like, oh, it's always priced in. But, you know, what is it? We have 900 Bitcoin that's mined every single day, right? And when the halvening occurs next year, that gets cut down to 450. How is that priced in? How, how you know, it's how that selling, yeah, that selling pressure, right? That selling pressure that's coming every single day. You know, it's not there anymore. And then you go from 450 every day uh, to 225, right? How is that priced in? So I think like everyone likes to say it's priced in. Everyone likes to, um, you know, have that in the back of their minds. And then the halving occurs and, and we see the real nature of this. But we all know that at the end of the day, the, the halving cycles, um, you know, have less and less of an effect on, on Bitcoin and, you know, in the long term in the in terms of the market size of it. And so I, I think I think that's that's what that's really what is 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 like is priced in is the the lessening effect of the the block happening more than the actual you know block happening itself. So um, I agree. Yeah, if you listen to any of you know the riots of the world, they're they're just like we're trying to mine as much Bitcoin as we possibly can, like right now until the halving. And then yeah, they have to figure it out when that when that comes, right? Like they have a plan, but yeah. it's not executed until like the moment that it actually happens. Because they're up until the last very minute until the ha that last block, they are trying to mine as much Bitcoin as they possibly can. And then it's like, all right, plan starts to transition um, to half the rewards. Yeah, you know, honestly, Tristan, I, I wouldn't want to like being a miner. That that's a hard business, man. Like that's that's tough. Like I, I you know, I, I feel for those guys, and 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 like the other thing too, I feel like miners really need to do is financial planning, right? Like planning out, okay, you know, in in so many months, this is going to be cut in half. Let's make sure that we're managing our treasury effectively. Those miners that went out and took Bitcoin-backed loans at the top, right, of last year, you know, how many miners died from, you know, doing those types of things? And so I think having something like treasury management or having like, you know, uh, tools that you can actually put your, uh, your Bitcoin into um, or, you know, financial planning tools for miners, I think that's going to be incredibly important as we, as we move forward.
And I think the miners that are going to be sur- going to survive are going to be the ones that actually do that. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because it's so risky, really, and there's no there's no safe company out there like 100% when it comes to to mining and and still even though and that's why you see, you see the volatility in their stock prices it's actually like way more volatile than than uh, bitcoin itself which is interesting as well maybe maybe you guys venture into capitalizing on volatility of that <laughs> but no it's uh it's interesting because yeah it's uh and it's gotten to this point where there is such a large expense to become a miner from the hardware perspective of asics from the you know electricity requirements needed so it's really only kind of like the big boys duking it out i know there's more you know sovereign individuals who have some small miners but i think really they're just trying to get non-kyc sats um and maybe that's something we could talk a little bit about is yeah the kyc aspect of bitcoiners that's you know something they're fearful of especially with government crackdowns uh, what's Atomic's stance on that? And is there anything you guys are doing specifically in that realm that's maybe more beneficial to the individual? Yeah, for sure. Well, I think like in general, like like I would love to have the vision for like no KYC forever, right? For any financial tools at Bitcoin. Like if you're able to get access to, right, is there is there KYC for sending a Bitcoin transaction? No. Um, but the reality obviously is that, um, you know, as we, um, as the as the time changes and uh, you know regulations come into place, like obviously you know the nature of what we do is likely going to have to change. So we don't require KYC right now, but that might change in the future if regulation comes into place that you know kind of changes this gray area into you know much more clear cut. Um, but I would love I would love long term to you know just continue doing you know no KYC financial tools because I think that's that's really the way it should be done right if you're able to do lightning payments if you're able to do transactions um, without having to give that information away or even open yourself up to it's right like KYC is a security risk because we all know that the databases are going to be hacked and that information is going to get out there um, and so I would love for that to that to continue for financial tools. We obviously need to, you know, stay compliant for the long term. And so that's obviously something we're always, always looking out for. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I was trying to remember, I was like, well, I didn't have to, you know, link my bank account because it's just Bitcoin. Right. So it actually, yeah, it's, it's quite nice to have that. Yeah. Non KYC in the beginning. And yeah, that's the benefit of having just Bitcoin. Obviously, if that Bitcoin is traceable back to your Coinbase, blah, 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 blah. You, that's something you have to worry about personally. But is that a big, like, you think that's coming? You think there's more regulations coming and KYC is going to be implemented widespread? And will that happen in Canada first or in the US? Or how does that change your outlook? Is, is Atomic just based in Canada as a company right now? I'd assume so. Yeah, we're based in company or we're based in Canada, but obviously, like I think, um, certain regulations in the United. Well, it's funny, right? The United States generally puts out regulation, and then Canada goes and follows and does it. the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> we like to copy you guys, uh, except for the ETF. I don't know what you guys have been doing, but <laughs> um, and so um, and so that's generally what happens. And so um, you know, there's certain certain kind of regulations that are up in the air right now that. Uh, especially around the transportation bill, like, hey, you know, having to um, any transaction that occurs over, you know, a certain amount in the United States, like having to KYC for that, which is really unfortunate to see. Um, I believe the current is like that, that isn't 
um, in place or won't be in place until the start of 2025, and it's still up in the air. But if that ends up going going through, I think that's that's really sad in general for you know non-custodial finance, especially for Americans, because it totally changes the game in terms of like the the requirements of you know interacting with U.S. citizens. And so um, I hope that there's more pushback against those bills to. Um, you know, uh, in order to like kind of continue to allow for, you know, finance and transactions and payments to be done, um, you know, without having those um, kind of hard requirements. But, um, you know, it's not it's not looking, you know, great right now. But, uh, you know, maybe we need to, you know, drum up some noise around those, you know, the transportation bill um, and, and get people to push back against that, you know. Yeah, no, it's 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 great to hear that you hold this perspective, obviously, as a through and through Bitcoiner, because that's something that's, yeah, it's a large concern. And if any of those listening are not familiar with KYC, it's know your customer, it's having your identity tied to your money, basically. And uh, that is something that we've already seen, you know, bank accounts of people have been frozen and yeah, the yeah, the money going to the, the truck truckers in Canada being frozen and people fined for things like that. So it's probably only going to get worse in the short, medium term. But again, if we stand back and like you're saying, kind of have some momentum to protect ourselves against this, that would be helpful. So that's really cool to have that at least in the short term. And obviously you guys want to do what's best for, for your customers. Um, being Bitcoiners and, and understanding that, but having that model from the get-go where you're not linking a bank account, you're just in Bitcoin, gives you that advantage from the very start. So that's what's really cool about it to me. And yeah, I guess in the greater sense, I'm thinking more and more about this macroeconomic environment that we're in. And I had Joe Consorti on, which is a fantastic conversation about kind of where we are right now. And I'm curious what you think the state of things are and how, you know, what did the the Fed said today that we're not going to go into a recession until 2027, which uh, was hilarious. I, I just, I think it's a giant clown show as, as Marty always says. And it's, it's really just entertaining for, for folks like us. I don't know. We're kind of like young. Yeah. Maybe we have some money, but it's like, wow, this is an exciting time because there's so much like volatility. You can take advantage of it. And that's your whole business model. And yeah, I'm I'm like stoked for the next 12 to 18 months to play out because I think it's like one of the best opportunities to capitalize financially. Probably in our lifetime, we weren't around for 2000, we weren't around for 2008. Now we have Bitcoin and potentially the first recession that Bitcoin's ever gone through. How do you kind of see that affecting Bitcoin with the halving and then also just in general? You think it's going to be just like, bloody chaos and happen really soon or you think they're just going to turn on the money printer and obviously we don't know but i'm curious to hear your thoughts yeah i'm not, obviously i'm not an economic expert and so i'm more of a technical guy but if i was to you know put my hat in the ring and, and think about this it seems to me like um you know there's just been a deterioration over time of like uh, you know what the a fiat, right? Just in general, like the devaluation of the currency over a long period of time, lying about the numbers of like, the amount of inflation, um, you know, a, 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 you know, a bizarre, um, you know, negative effect on the banks that occurred with, you know, Silicon Valley Bank and, 
um, you know, things of that nature where the, the bank's business model is now starting to change, talks about CBDCs, um, you know, this, this bizarre environment that is starting to, to be unleashed um, and, a, and a more and more difficult economic situation, I think, for most folks. The, the costs of, of building supplies have gone up like dramatically. The, the, the costs of, of housings or the average mortgage have gone up, you know, dramatically. And so it seems to me like the, you know, oh, we're gonna, not going to hit a recession until 2027. Like we're already in a recession. What are you talking about? Like that's nonsense. Um, and so um, I think the question there is: during times of um, an economic recession, is it likely for um, for the price of you know people? Like I, I guess the question there is: like is is Bitcoin the the safe haven asset? Right. Like that's the question that all Bitcoiners are asking. And um, and so if it is, you know, then we see obviously a large, you know, large price up during during the bull run and people start to move their assets over to Bitcoin. But I think the other question is your average person um, is seeing more and more of their paycheck kind of being whittled away over time through taxation, through um, the cost of goods, through inflation. Um, and whether that has a kind of negative effect on, you know, their free funds being able to to flow into Bitcoin as well, I think we have yet to see. So, um I don't know. If, I don't know. If that doesn't really give an answer. I, I'm I'm curious to see if we'll see. Um, I, I obviously hope that people start to see it as a safe haven asset. Um, but we might we might even see you know less of a run up than than last time. And I think it's going to take more and more to move the needle each time. And so I think volatility brick comes back absolutely. But if if people are shooting for you know Bitcoin going to a million for the next bull run, I think they're probably out to lunch. <laughs> yeah. If I'm being honest. Yeah, well, that's ridiculous. Well, I hope that doesn't happen because that means like literally the U.S. dollar is just collapsing completely. And yeah, for me, it's like it's still a risk on asset. So if everything, you know, and we've already seen this large influx into like more safe haven investments like money markets and and treasuries that actually have some yield and things like people are just taking their money out of stocks slowly. But you know, they're not the average person's not just going to be yeah, buying more Bitcoin. And as you're mentioning, they have this, you know, smaller pie to kind of choose from. So I, I think it's still on the downside. It's going to run with the rest. And on the upside, it's going to outperform because if there is upside, it'll be due to expansion of the balance sheet again. And yeah, then that's where it comes into play as kind of like an inflation hedge and everyone gets fired up about it. But I still think, yeah, we're, we're just too early to where it's not like a very risk on asset. And that's what kind of Joe said on here. And I'm just kind of paraphrasing a lot of what he said, which kind of cemented my perspective. But I think this always happens. I think we get like close to the halving and the bull market and people just get like very eager like at 30k 32k everyone was so bullish blackrock obviously is is a big reason to be bullish but you know there's no definitive outcome on that for some time you can speculate all you want but i think everyone just gets so feverly bullish and i'm like well i kind of hope everything goes back to 20k so i can buy more and uh yeah i don't know trying to <laughs> trying to be retired in a few years here right so that's fine with me well, I feel like it's also such a like, it's such a weird thing because like, okay, if we think of every bull run that happened, right? In 20, like in 2013, 2014, what percentage of Bitcoiners like just became Bitcoiners during that time? Or 2017, 2018, what percentage of Bitcoiners mm-hmm. became Bitcoiners just during that time? So you have these run-ups that keep happening 
and you have this hopium that comes in and lots of people come for that hopium and they end up getting wrecked and then they learn about it. So I think that's, that's the bullishness that comes out of this is like, you know, people come for the, um, to the get rich quick and they stay for the sound money. Right. Like, and I think that's, you know, if we can keep pushing that, that education, right. Sound money. And I guess what we're building sound finance for sound money, you know, then, then we start to see like, you know, more and more changes in the, in the inevitable. But I think at the same time, like Bitcoin is not inevitable, right? Like we still need to make sure that we, we do the necessary things and, and, and we don't like from a technical perspective, we don't ossify Bitcoin so much that it doesn't make the changes necessary in order to, you know, make sure that it can scale and, and get to the people that, um, that actually need it. Like we, we're not ready for 7 billion people. Like we're barely ready for, for a hundred million. Um, and, and so we got a lot of work to do. Yeah. Well, I implore people and we have a referral or ambassador programs that you can get some cool startup benefits because they're still early. And I would just say, check it out, right? Like I got a small amount of Bitcoin in there. I'm excited to play around with it. I'm excited that, you know, it's self-custody Bitcoin. There are these tools to still earn yield. But again, everything you said, right? Like don't put your whole stack in there. Don't just trade it all away on, on manual options when that's available. You know, take the principles of Bitcoin and play around with it. And yeah, let us know what you think. But Matt, appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming on. I think this is a great chat. And uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll link that all below. And thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of Decentralized Radio. We'll see you next time. Sweet, man. That was great. <laughs>